You're listening to the Conversations Speaking With podcast. I'm William Isdale. The power of vested interests in our political system and bureaucracies has always been a problem. Sweet deals for insiders, like government protected monopolies for taxis or pharmacies, or favorable development and land rezoning decisions. They often benefit a small group of people to the detriment of the rest of society. Usually there's nothing illegal about these kinds of deals or benefits, but my guest today says the rules need changing. More of the economic benefit of public decisions should be captured for the public, and we need to encourage greater competition to get better outcomes for consumers in superannuation, banking, and much else. Dr. Cameron Murray is an economist at the University of Queensland, and alongside Professor Paul Freiters, he's the author of Game of Mates, how favors bleed the nation. I started off by asking him to explain what exactly he means by game of mates. The game of mates is actually about the way human beings naturally organize themselves around valuable gifts. And so this game is about seeking favor, building relationships to capitalize on those relationships to get political favors. What it's not explicitly is corruption, illegal corruption or bribery. It's the really subtle sort of favoritism that goes on day in, day out uh, across the political spectrum at all levels of government. And uh, the reason to write about it is that this game has become so entrenched and so flagrant and so costly uh, that someone needs to shine a light in and look at it systematically. And that's what the book's about. Well, it's easy to just focus on $10,000 in cash and brown paper bags and that kind of thing. But in the larger scheme of things, that might be pretty small, small chips compared to this larger, more pervasive grey corruption that you're talking about. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's quite interesting. There's been a lot of focus in the media and in the political agenda lately on donations, foreign donations, uh, local council donations, and that, that sort of thing. But altogether, the, the, the donations to politics are tiny. I was at the Triple C inquiry here in Queensland recently, and they were asking questions about a few thousand dollars here and there. If you flip around and look at the other side and say, well, what are these donations all about? Well, they're about getting the favours. Look at it from another perspective. How big are these favours? Well, they're often tens or hundreds of millions of dollars a year that councils can give away when they choose to approve a planning application or rezoning of their mate who's a developer instead of someone else. That's a huge windfall game, hundreds of times larger than these donations. And that is why the economic cost is so high. And that's what we should really be focusing on. Who gets the discretion over these things of great value, these political decisions. So the game of mates is a sort of long run favor exchange. And you say it's cronyism writ large. What are the ingredients for a game of mates to get started? How does this occur? So what you need is you need power to give highly valuable gifts to another party that don't cost you. This is a natural human behavior to trade favors amongst friends. But, you know, I don't care about favors amongst friends when I give a a favor to my mate or my relative. It costs me personally. 
the catch is when you've got this highly valuable favour to give, and that's when you have the power in a political situation or a decision-making situation in a bureaucracy or a large institution or, f- or firm, you can give favours to your mates that don't cost you personally. They cost the rest of us. So if I rezone my mate's land that's really far from the existing town, and then I'm, uh, I approve uh, the construction of a new train line out to his land, all those favours come at no personal cost to me. That can actually be a benefit to me. But what it does is it costs the rest of the community and all those landowners who missed out on, on being able to subdivide their land in, in better locations. And so that's the first main ingredient, this grey gift. You've got to have something of value. If there's nothing of value to be traded, there's no reason to donate in the first place. There's no reason to lobby. There's no reason to form these relationships. So that's uh, what I try to focus on on the book is if you care just about the donations, you're missing the big picture and you're sort of um, eliminating from the debate, hang on, why do we have such valuable grey gifts to give and why aren't we selling them, for example, or taxing them? That's, that's where the focus should be. So you've highlighted here this issue of property and development decisions, which you say is a, a key example of where a game of mates has often developed. What are you proposing as the alternative model here? What should we be doing? What's best practice? So in in land development, it's very easy. It's much easier to see because it's not quite as subtle as other industries like banking and superannuation that are quite complex and a lot of the rules are hidden and you don't really see what's going on. When you see development in your area, you can see what's going on. You can see uh, that that's gone from an agricultural site to a development site and it's worth a hell of a lot more. So the best practice is not to concentrate on the donations, but to concentrate on the value given away. So what you can do is you can sell the rights. So if you're a developer and you buy an agricultural site and you want to subdivide it, that decision increases the value of your land dramatically. But what you can do as the council or as a state government, you can sell the development rights to transform it from agricultural to residential. And you can take those gains for yourself. You can eliminate taxes elsewhere. You can invest in your community with those revenues instead of giving them as that favour. So what it does is it takes away the value of the favour that developers are after. So if they want to get an exceptionally high approval for a massive amount of density, rather than them getting the extra $50 million of land value, they might have to pay 40 or 50 million to get that right, or we could tax it instead and say, look, if your value goes up from the planning decision, you pay us a share of the gains, pay us in the ACT 75%. So if you had $50 million gain, the government would share in it. They could share that gain around rather than just giving it to their mates. But isn't this in the public interest? Because although there might be a small number of people who are getting a huge windfall, they're development companies who might then build important public infrastructure and development. Well, that's exactly what the development industry wants to tell you. And it doesn't really uh, pass even the slightest scrutiny. So if they're promising to develop, these approvals should come with obligations to develop. So if you, uh, if a developer promises 20,000 new houses in this new suburb and you approve it, you're giving them the right or the option to develop, but not the obligation. They can turn around the next day and sell it to the next developer and take that gain for themselves. If you think they're promising, you should get something back for it, not just giving it away for nothing. Now, there's examples in Queensland where developers had promised to solve the local housing shortage with 20,000 new dwellings in their planning application in a particular area. That same developer, that same year, 
in their report to investors said, we have enough land to drip feed housing for 30 years on this site. So essentially, they're trying to pull the wool over the planner's eyes and say, we're going to build all this housing, when the optimal thing for them is to drip feed the new housing at the slowest rate they can to keep the value up. And that's what they tell their investors. So it's a bit of a, a myth, that one, that uh, you need to give developers favours to get housing built. Some people think that a good way to stop possibly dodgy <coughs> land rezoning decisions and so forth is to just have greater transparency because local government isn't a well-monitored or scrutinised level of government. People are more interested in federal politics. But you've done some computer experiments that show that that's really not true. Can you tell me about those experiments? You know, I actually thought donations were the main game and I thought transparency was the main solution. And then I actually started studying uh, this in much more detail and I learned that I was wrong. What I did is I wanted to test okay, what if everyone knew what, who was who and who was cutting deals with who and favouring who? Now, obviously, it's hard to experiment in real life, so I wrote a computer game, and I had students from the university come in and play this game. And the way the game was set up is that you would have the temporary control over resources. You could give a grey gift periodically. And what we found is that in 84% of the groups that I had through, and I had over 500 students come through in, uh, in many groups of different forms, subgroups or partnerships formed where they would trade these grey gifts amongst themselves at a cost to everybody else, which is exactly what we see in politics. Now, I changed the game and I got them to increase transparency and show photographs of each other. So hopefully that they would uh, cooperate more broadly. They wouldn't want to pick a fight in the hallway afterwards or anything like that. They would see who's there. They would know that their reputation is, is being monitored and that they would do the right thing for the group. Uh, that had absolutely no effect. What it actually did, and it's really subtle, this transparency issue, is it helps them coordinate. They could see, oh, who's my friend in real life? Oh, that's the person I should be favoring. So we already have a lot of transparency. But the question is, you know, is a little bit more of that going to change anything? Well, it's a very indirect route. It has to go from a little bit more transparency to the media, to the political pressure, to changing the rules when there is really a much more direct route, which is let's just change the rules. So it doesn't matter if it's not transparent because there's no favor to give. And even if you ask for transparency, people will work out ways around it. And we've seen exactly that with the disclosure rules in this triple C inquiry. People are just putting company names there. Oh, they gave me all this money. No one knows who those companies are, who's behind them. So it's, it's almost a, you're going to end up chasing your tail no matter what you do. So let's focus on the things we know work better. The game of mates is starting in the first place, though, because there's discretion to give these grey gifts that don't cost the giver anything. So why not limit or rein in the discretion? Why is there this broad discretion in the first place to give these grey gifts? Well, somebody's got to make decisions, right? So we elect politicians to take this role temporarily until the next election. We have this electoral pressure to monitor them. But I do think we should be taking away some discretion uh, wherever we can in the rule systems. For example, let's have a th look at uh, the jury system. Would we like to have professional juries use their discretion over whether a criminal is convicted or not? Well, I don't think that would be good because they would be lobbied because they would have a thing of great value to the criminal that they could give away at no cost to themselves. So what we do to avoid that sort of thing, we uh, have essentially a lottery for who decides what's going to be done.
done. So we can use those types of systems in practice and have citizen juries who are drawn by lotteries to make decisions on new planning schemes. We can implement this more broadly in the public service as well for senior positions who have to make those discretions. And we can make sure that there are time limits on this, that you have a a fixed amount of time where you have the discretion uh, and then someone else is drawn. So no one knows who to lobby to capitalise on it. But in the end, someone at some point has to make these decisions. The process is going to be imperfect, but we can improve it dramatically. You say that another key industry where there's a game of mates that's developed is in financial services broadly, but in particular, you highlight superannuation and banking. Talk to me about why there's a a game of mates that's developed there and what the cost is for regular citizens. Right. So financial services, they are, they have this uh, d- this power to choose where investments are made with huge sums of other people's money in the economy. So a superannuation fund gets to make allocation decisions about essentially trillions of dollars of everybody else's money. So they have discretion there of who they fund and when with other people's money. But uh, there's also rules built in that that make it difficult for consumers to have oversight on what's going on with their their money. So the trick in financial services is that unlike products we buy at the supermarket every day, we have to commit for a very long time to a mortgage or to a superannuation fund. And they can't promise how it's going to perform compared to other products. So immediately, the decision makers in these firms have a lot of power over the customer. They have a lot of discretion about, for example, what insurance packages go into your superannuation account. And it's very, very hard for the the customer to know what that's like. I'm an economist. I have three economics degrees. And even I have trouble understanding my own superannuation account. So you can imagine every, every worker across the country having their money compulsorily put into these accounts uh, that they know nothing about. So that essentially hands over power to that industry. And the fact that these products are complicated means that there's a lot of hidden rule changes that we can't know about and about how they affect us. So it's a really ripe area for lobbying because all these experts can get rules changed and no one even knows how that's going to affect their own product. And those rule changes can really provide a lot of favours for the executive and the senior um, management of those companies. But there seems to be quite a large number of super funds and banks that people could choose between. So why isn't the market sort of operating to bring down prices in the interests of consumers? Markets work in particular circumstances. Uh, It's a very naive view to think that just because there are many firms that somehow there's magically competition. We know firms implicitly collude. We know that banks implicitly collude. And just think about what you would do if you were to start your own superannuation firm. This is this is how competition should work. You should be able to show up, offer your product at a cheaper fee than everybody else, and everyone should be able to leave their product and, and, and get yours, and, and you capture a large share of the market, and you make more money for offering a better product. Of course, the catch is, this is not a product that people choose to buy re- repeatedly. People don't change the superannuation account all the time and you've got no way to promise that your product's better either because people can't try it. They have to buy it once. And so the best thing for you to do as a new entrant is to charge the same amount everyone else is and try and market some other sort of uh, indirect, you know, moral high ground or some fashionable thing like investing in space. It's definitely not in your interest to undercut anybody. And it's the same in banking. The system we've created is designed to be stable so that one bank can't undercut anybody else. The way to solve that, though, is to create a competitor who can. A competitor who can will be a publicly owned one that doesn't have these profit motive from the start and who can capture a large share of the, the market and offer a cheaper service. And in, in by doing that, by competing, force down the prices of the private firms. So there's this uh, competitive pressure that we can create, but we've chosen not to by having a public competitor who can uh, rein in the power of the private companies, even though there are many of them who aren't necessarily competing in what we'd call an economically competitive way. 
I want to come back to the public competitor idea in a minute, but tell me a bit more about implicit coordination and how that works and why it means that even when there are a large number of providers of a service, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to compete with one another. The essential outcome here is that you've got two options to compete. You either compete on price or you, you don't. And it's not always the case that competing on price wins. And we know in economics, because we have anti-competitive rules to make sure that firms are competing on price and not implicitly colluding, which would be the natural outcome over time. So it's it's a little bit subtle and difficult, but what's in the best interest of all companies in a market is to cooperate together. Okay, so they have to have some other reason not to cooperate and compete and undercut, and that reason has to be that they can take a huge amount of market share from doing that, that they can become the monopolist in the future if they play their cards right. But in the financial services, and particularly in banking, uh, we just don't let that sort of stuff happen. We don't like the instability of banks going broke because they're outcompeted with other by new other banks. Inherently, we trade off this stability for this competitiveness. And if we're going to do that, well, let's keep the stability, but have some public competitor. And we can have both if we really want. Okay, let's talk about the public competitors. You say that for superannuation, Denmark is the world's best practice. I think also the Netherlands. And then for banking, in particular for mortgages, you identify Canada. So tell me about those different schemes that they have and what you're advocating that we adopt in Australia. So the Danes have a superannuation system that's somewhat similar to ours. It's it's not a tax and a pension. It's a private savings system, a compulsory system. And their typical fee on the balance of of superannuation is about 0.1% per year. Now, the average fee in Australia is 1.2%. So that's 12 times higher. And the difference there, that 1.1% on this $2 trillion balance, is $20 billion of extra profit a year compared to if we had the Danish low-cost system. And that's because they created a public alternative that dominates their system. And so the private competitors have to match that if they want to get people's savings and invest them. What about the banking idea, though? Because I don't really see any political interest in starting up a, a state competitor bank, but you seem to indicate that there might be quite a lot of profits here for the, for the government if it did do that. That's right. So we had a public bank, the Commonwealth Bank, many years and we had many other sorts of public banks uh, historically and and most countries do have public state banks that they use for social purposes to invest in new development we've turned a corner and we've said oh no we need this fully private system and what you see is it's quite interesting we privatized the commonwealth bank and then there was a celebration at the anniversary of the uh, the commonwealth bank privatization about how successful it was and in the media the reports were well it was so successful because shareholders have made you know 500 percent in the last however many years it was the alternative, of course, was for it to be a publicly owned bank, keeping the costs of the private sector banks down and at the same time making half a billion or whatever the, the, the profits were for the public. And we could have reduced other inefficient taxes all across the economy by keeping those profits, which we've essentially privatized by doing that. So we certainly could do that again. The Reserve Bank, there's a proposal out there by many economists to let use the Reserve Bank to open itself for uh, low-risk deposit and lending to the public just through electronic banking without the need to have a huge branch network. And that could just take away a huge amount of that profit center from the private banks who are essentially doing a public service of settling payments and creating the money of for society. So we could do that publicly and we could make a little bit of money doing it and we could keep the costs of doing it in the private sector down by competing. 
So far, it seems like the two main ideas that you've got to prevent the game from starting or stopping it once it has started is to, in the case of land development, you talked about taxing away the gains or capturing that value for the public. And then in financial services, you've talked about increasing competition by having a public competitor. What other ways are there to stop the game or prevent it being played in the first place? And there's a couple of other things we can do. In the Netherlands, there's a, there's a rule that if you are... Uh, work for a, a government-owned entity or a statutory body, you cannot earn more than the Prime Minister, for example. And so what that means is that for these semi-privatised institutions and in these government bureaucracies, this ability to employ your mates at a huge salary as a way of coordinating and buying favour and building relationships just isn't there because there's this limit on salary. So the only people who will take those salaries and do those positions are the specialists in that area who, who know the area and just want to uh, earn what the Prime Minister makes. And we've seen examples where there's you know, million-dollar salaries for, for people who don't you know, have a specialty in the market. They're just there because they're well-connected. Well, you say another problem is the the ease with which people are often moving between the regulators and the regulator, and that's one way that the game can be continued. In Queensland, for example, there are rules cooling off periods for politicians. Not for anybody who's worked for uh, state regulators, but for politicians. Now, that cooling off period says you cannot uh, lobby, uh, be a professional lobbyist for uh, a couple of years after you retire from politics. However, what it doesn't exclude is you working internally for a company essentially as a lobbyist, but not as a consultant lobbyist, for a company in the area that you were the minister in charge of regulating before. And so what we've seen in Queensland is pretty much every premier, planning minister, influential uh, minister or councillor, after they've left politics, show up on a property developer's doorstep the next day, working internally for some unknown salary, which is essentially, you know, a repaying past favours. So if you think of donations as prepayment, you know, this is postpayment of favours granted. So we need to shut that down and uh, we can sort of also make sure that uh, our regulatory agencies, we have the senior staff drawn from interstate or internationally to really uh, make sure we have that independence built in. So they can be drawn from pools of international experts with a lottery or by some other means and they can have a short period in charge and then they can go back to where they came from. And of course, with that system, there's no time to build that relationship and curry favour with those people. Well, it's our politicians who often have the power or do have the power to prevent the game from being played in various industries. But you're basically saying, well, their incentives aren't always aligned with the public interest and they're sometimes part of the game as well. Yes. So um, it doesn't make any sense for a politician to, to crack down on this game because their future incomes and all the favours that they can uh, draw upon later in life are, are set up by this game. So the way to get change politically is to pressure, is to generate electoral pressure from uh, competing uh, with new uh, political parties or voting out the major parties or whatever we can do to put the pressure on whoever's in power because they're not going to change unless they're forced to. And they're not going to be forced to internally because everyone's in the game. They're going to be forced to because of electoral pressure. So the latest example is Malcolm Turnbull and uh, Scott Morrison's bank levy. So there's been a lot of pressure lately to have an inquiry into banks. They've taken this pressure and they've said, well, I don't really want to have one, but I've got to respond. So I'll implement this levy instead. That's good. I'm going to essentially take back some of the money the banks get from having this uh, cushy regulatory system that we allow them to have. And that should maybe take off some of that external pressure. So you can see when the timing's right and when there's enough pressure, you'll get some kind of response. And we saw in... Um, 
when the Labor government was elected uh, during the financial crisis, they put forward their resource super profits tax. Okay, The electoral pressure got them in and they took on the miners. Of course, if you have an effective policy, the losers are going to be really upset. Okay, So you can see the banks recently, they're a bit upset with their levy. They've preempted this uh, pressure and they've hired a former premier to head up their lobbyist uh, association and they're going to they're going to attack left right and center in the media because it's worth it it's worth 6 billion dollars for them it doesn't matter if they spend 100 million dollars on advertising and consultants and lobbyists and whatever else they can because it's 6 billion that they can get instead of the public and we saw that in mining this huge campaign and we would see it in property again Anybody who proposes this uh, will be crushed. And I've heard from insiders that if you recommend my proposal, this betterment tax where you charge for the land value gains, you'll be an outsider. No politician will talk to you. You've just signaled that you're going to give the game away and no one wants to be involved with you. So you've got to be prepared to go in, make change and get out. You're not there to make friends. Uh, that's the type of people we need to elect and, and generate this uh, electoral pressure. You said before that you thought that political donations reform would just be tinkering around the edges. But many people think that this is the main reason why politicians are playing the game, because if they don't play it, then their political donations will dry up and their political adversary will have an advantage. Yeah, look, the money in political donations is tiny. And 60% of political donations come from donors who donate equally to both parties. You know, you're going to get your share because the donors don't care which party you're from. They just want to get get favours from whoever's elected. The other thing I've learned looking at donations is that they're not actually that good at predicting who gets the favour. If you don't look at the donations but look at the favours, what you find is that it's the relationship networks. And in many cases, the donations are an attempt to build the relationship network. They're people who aren't well connected yet who want to climb that ladder and build those networks. Now, there are alternative ways to do that and one's hire a professional lobbyist and they can vouch for you. They're already connected and they're going to vouch for you. It's a bit like joining the mafia. You either sort of buy your way in or you, you get in through your relationships or you can do it yourself so it is tinkering around the edges if you cut off donations you'd just see more breakfast events and industry functions and this lobbying industry proceed as it was possibly more well-funded than ever and there'd be no recorded donations but a whole alternative system for cracking into these relationship networks so that's why i don't i don't see it as a as a huge issue and it it sort of doesn't matter what you do, people will organise. As long as there's still billions of dollars of favours to give, people will organise in some way. They'll marry into the right families and get well connected. So donations are sort of small fry. If we talk about the current media attention on uh, foreign donations, all that says to me is these foreign companies aren't well connected yet. There is a club and there are favours to be given. They're just not in the club yet and they're trying to buy a ticket to get in. That's all it says. It doesn't say to me that, oh, these guys are going to get all these favours. Yeah, eventually they might get as many favours as all the locals who are already in the club. But right now, what they're showing to me is they're not quite as well connected as they want to be. There's a lot of cynical voters around at the moment who think that we've got an elite established political class here, party apparatchiks. And there's a strong anti-elite sentiment, I think, that you might see in Donald Trump's election or Brexit. And people might say, what we need is to get rid of the current bunch and to put some good people in politics who aren't already captured by vested interests. So is that the right solution, just do a clean flush and put some good people in government? I'd say that that is a good idea. However, it's not a long-term solution if you're just replacing one person with another who does not have an agenda for cracking down on these gifts and the value of these gifts. And and knowing what they can do so that there's no future incentive for new groups to form around the, this honeypot of highly valuable gifts that can be given. What I found in, in my experiments is that everyone is seduced when they're given the chance. 
few vote someone out, they will be seduced and they will end up realize what's best for them when now that they're elected is to look after these other interests. And they will, you know, people change their tune. It's hard to stick by these principles when you're in this social environment. It's totally natural to be caught up in it and then rethink your ideas and go, well, hang on a minute, maybe what's good for developers is good for society, actually. It's very hard. So it's not a matter of having bad people and electing the right people. It's, a, it's getting the right policy changes being discussed in the public so that whoever you put in and replace has to respond to that pressure and adopt that policy. That's what everyone's talking about. It can't be ignored. That's got to be the first thing that they've got to implement. Because once they're enacted and everyone's following them, then you know there's no incentive then to curry favor and seduce those people into giving them because they've tied their hands. They've implemented the new system. It would be easy to think of the game of mates as just played by a small subset of elite and then there's the rest of us. But another thing that you really show is that a lot of us benefit from games in some industries and lose out in others. Yeah, I mean, these gains are there, right? So the economy is full of what economists call the surplus, okay? Someone's got to get the money. So with the rezoning, it's either the landowner or the public, right? Someone's got to get it. The question is, can we share it more widely? And obviously the easy thing to do is take the gains for the public and reduce taxes on other productive activity. That's an efficient way to share it around. But you're right, there is a game going on in pharmacy. I mean, the Pharmacy Guild is a, a, a big-time lobbyist. They're well-connected, the relationships of the uh, the lobby group of the pharmacists, and they get protections from competition enshrined in legislation so that they make abnormal high profits. The taxi industry for many years had enshrined in legislation rules that meant that the new taxi licenses couldn't be issued if it was going to threaten the value of existing licenses. So that's just a built-in mechanism to pour society's money to the taxi license owners, to, to give them the surplus instead of the rest. So someone's got to get it. But at the same time, the taxi owners, they were given a dud deal on their home loan and their superannuation as well. And the pharmacists, of course, they got a bad deal on rezoning and other things. So uh, what we're seeing is a real narrowing of who's getting the surplus. It's just the big end of town. It's just the top of all these big industries. And Australia has a very narrow economic base. And so we do have um, mining, banking, property as a really huge part of the economy. And it's now just a small group in those uh, that narrow set of industries getting most of the most of the gains. And what did you find about the effect on the average Australian's real wealth of the game of mates writ large? So if we add it all up, and of course we can't look at every single sector of the economy, at some point you have to stop and, and put your book out there and start the discussion. But if you are outside all of these games, if you don't have a foot in any door or any relationship, it's essentially half your real wealth is, is the ballpark figure we came up with. And obviously, that's not a good thing for the cohesiveness of, of society. And I think uh, the big picture perspective is that the next 10 years, Australia is going to be catching up to a lot of the polarization politically that's happening in the rest of the world, simply because of this massive upward redistribution through the political system and through these favours that we're seeing. And people know out there that they're getting a bad deal. People out there have have the right to be unhappy about the direction things are going and should organise to kick out this bunch, but also make sure that they're talking about useful solutions and don't get caught up in what are sometimes just distractions. So I often think of donations reform. Maybe that's just a distraction because you can reform donations. Everyone who's in the club gets to stay in there. They don't need to donate anyway. They're just essentially closing one door to the new players. Let's just not pretend that that's the solution. Let's just think that that's the start of the changes we need to make. Dr. Murray, thank you so much for speaking with The Conversation. Thanks for having me.
Thank you for listening to the Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, TuneIn Radio or Stitcher. And please leave a comment or review. We love to hear from you.